0: There was no question that keeping us going was not going to have a different outcome. It was just going to spend a whole lot more money without any value to show for it, Jeffrey Katzenberg told Deadline in his first interview after the decision to shut down Quibi after just six months. So out of respect for these people that put up this extraordinary amount of capital to do it, that's irresponsible and we both felt we shouldn't do it. The former DreamWorks animation boss Added. So in this episode, we're going to be basically going over Quibi, 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 right? And basically how it's a $2 billion failure. And basically, we're going to be just basically going over this whole uh, conversation that Dateline had, oh Deadline had with the people of Quibi. So initiated by Katzenberg over 2 years ago and led by former eBay chief Meg Whitman, the ambitious mobile subscription video platform had over 1.7 billion dollars in investments from the likes of Disney, NBC, Universal, Sony Pictures, MGM, the entities now known as Warner Media and Viacom CBS, as well as Wall Street's Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan Chase. With the premise of delivering original short-form programming via smartphones to an America on the go, the much-hyped and well-promoted Quibi app debuted in April just as the coronavirus pandemic ramped up and kept millions at home in quarantine and lockdown. With the long-anticipated official announcement Wednesday around $350 million still in the bank in a virtual town hall meeting, With most of Quibi's 200-strong staff about to start, Kotzenberg and CEO Whitman spoke to me today. The longtime friends revealed what happened to their dream and how their years in the media industry helped them make the call to pull the plug. Kotzenberg and Whitman also outlined their plan to bring the company in for its final landing and if there is someone out there to buy the assets. Although my question is, what assets? So, Deadline. So, Jeffrey, how does Quibi come to its end now? Cottensburg, There's a wind down that will take place over the next couple of months, Dominic. I think the first most important thing for us, I would say, well, there's two. And every decision that we make from today forward, we need to do right by this incredible group of employees, these daring entrepreneurs who joined Meg and I on this adventure. We have a tremendous obligation to help them transition from us into whatever their next opportunity is going to be, and I have to say there's not a single one of them that isn't going to land in some incredibly great situation, but this is a tough time. We are in the middle of a pandemic, and I think we want to be incredibly sensitive and most of all supportive of transitioning our employees and, you know, helping them with a good landing. Equally important is to wind down the business in a way in which we'll be able to return the max amount of money to our investors. We want to maximize the return to our investors here, and those numbers are going to be sizable. We are going to return a lot of money to them. Now, before we continue, I highly doubt that this is actually going to be the case because if I remember correctly, they were running so many ads and doing so many different sponsorships that it was just They must have been bleeding money, right? So deadline, when did the two of you make the decision to wind things down? Women, we tried a lot of different things over the summer, whether it was payment less free trial, 90-day free trial, 14-day free trial. We changed marketing around entirely to be more title marketing than platform marketing which we made a lot of changes, and we also, you know, tried a completely different business model in Australia. And ultimately, none of it really changed the fundamental answer of that we needed more capital, and we needed more capital relatively soon. And so I would say it's just been a journey for Jeffrey and I, as we've looked very clear-eyed at the data and said, what's the right thing to do? In order to get to scale, we would have to raise more capital, a lot more capital, and we would need to be raising it in the first part of the next year. And we don't think that we would have the data and the metrics to support another capital raise at that point. Ultimately, probably a couple weeks ago, we said, you know, the right thing to do, the hard right, but the right thing to do is to return cash to shareholders. Deadline, which is where you intend to see this conclude? Women, yes, and make sure... That we land this as well as we can. And I think for me, it's a bit of maturity. Now, I want to talk about this whole their like whole plan thing. Oh, like we need more capital. We need more capital soon and all that kind of stuff, right? This is the thing. And I remember hearing Kevin O'Leary from Strike Tank even say this, right? Where he doesn't like companies that just continuously try to raise money and raise money and raise money. Right? Because here's the thing. Raising money doesn't necessarily mean anything if you're not actually really selling anything, right? Like if you're not really having a business, what's the point of raising money, right? So raising more and more money would not have done anything for them, right? Because if they're trying to make something that is like a platform-based, but they are so indecisive, they couldn't really decide what they wanted to do. But let's just say they wanted to do kind of Something similar to Netflix and Hulu. Okay, they could easily do that, and they could do it for probably way cheaper than what they were trying to do, because a lot of the servers for Netflix and Hulu and stuff are basically things that they basically lease out to, I believe, Amazon and other um, service providers, where they actually like lease out a specific like box in certain regions of the country and different countries, right? So that they could basically put their whole catalog within this basically box that then is basically broadcasted across, you know, these different servers, right? So that's why you have the USA server for Netflix and then Canada and the UK and all that kind of stuff, right? Because it makes it easier, quicker for the uh, consumer. Deadline How do you mean, women? Most entrepreneurs just keep on going because they literally run out of money, and we just didn't think that was the right thing to do. Deadline. And so far that you could see, based on past experience, how this story was going to end. Women, we did. We could see it really clearly after all the experimentation and pivots that we did over the summer and frankly into September. Deadline. Jeffrey, Meg has pointed out some of the issues were cash flow, and certainly in this town, in this climate, people aren't spending oodles of money, but what about the outside resources, a SPAC, SPAC, offer I heard about and others? Why wasn't the environment there to make Quibi work financially? Kotzenberg. Well, I think Meg has really addressed the internal part of your question, Dominic, and that we just were not scaling fast enough. You know, given the investment that we were making... The quality and the quantity of the content that we were doing, we needed to really come out of the starting gate in a very big way in order for this to work. Now, how much of this was impacted by COVID will always be unknown. And again, Deadline says how so, but again, it's not a cash flow issue. It's not this whole other thing, especially with COVID. COVID definitely didn't impact it. It's just that they were so indecisive as to what they were actually doing. Again, if you saw any of the ads, right, (laughs) it was just so horrible. (laughs) Like, it was so horrible. If you've seen any of their ads, it was so horrible because it kind of like tell you, oh, it's about this one thing. But then it's, oh, maybe something more like a... TikTok, Maybe it's going to be more like an Instagram or IGTV. Maybe it's going to be more like YouTube. Maybe it's going to be like Netflix. Maybe it's going to be like something else. It's like they had like no clue what they were actually trying to do with it. Cuttenberg. Well, everything about Quibi was designed to be on the go, in between moments, at a moment in time, which no one was on the go, and their in-between moments were on their couch. And suddenly we were competing for people's attention in a way that we never conceived of or thought of. To answer the rest of your question there, which is is that over these past three weeks, we have aggressively looked at strategic partners, potential acquirers, additional funding, and financing. Every one of those stones was turned, and every one of them, I mean every possible avenue, because the last thing in the world we wanted to do was shut down. I mean, we love doing what we're doing. We are proud of the work that our team is doing, and we wanted to keep going. But you know, as Meg said, maybe it is the years of experiences here. There is no question that keeping us going was not going to have a different outcome. It was just going to spend a whole lot more money without any value to show for it. So out of respect for these people that put up this extraordinary amount of capital to do it, that's irresponsible, and we both felt we shouldn't do it. I agree. Deadline. Was there pressure from these studios who invested? Cusenberg, we weren't pressured by anybody about it one way or another. Women, it was the right thing to do. Kusenberg, yeah. Women, yeah, the right thing to do. Kusenberg, Meg has an expression that's in our value proposition, which is the hard right versus the easy wrong. So I would say this easily and comfortably fits into one of the fundamental tenets that we wanted to build Quibi on and do the hard right. Deadline, in these hard times, Kancenberg, well, yes, I think the big question will always be, was it that the idea of a standalone streaming streaming premium short-form platform wouldn't work, or is it that we got caught in a pandemic? Deadline, what do you think? Kancenberg, I think Meg and I are agreed that it's probably a mix of those two things. It's some of each. We are not solely a victim of COVID, but for sure it had a pretty extreme impact on how we conceived and launched The business, which again, to me, saying this is almost like, yeah, they're trying to like take like half ownership of the whole thing, of it failing, but come on, you can't blame this on COVID. You're literally creating a digital streaming platform, okay? Your employees can work at home, so it just doesn't even make sense. So Dylan Meg, there's going to be a lot of armchair punditry on the end of Quibi that there were that there were traditional and slower startup methods you could have used and so on. But from your perspective in the chair, the real chair, what were some of the things that you think now could have been different from the start? Women, yeah, well, you're right. Monday morning quarterback is usually easier. Listen, we made very deliberate decisions. Here's the good news. We didn't do things without thinking about it. We thought about should we have living room apps and we said, you know what, we're going to be mobile only because... We really thought our use case was 7 in the morning till 7 at night while you were on the go. So why would you need a living room app? And so we thought about it and we said, you know, in the prioritization of engineering tasks and engineering projects, that wasn't at the top of the list. Now, right after we launched in the pandemic, within a couple of weeks, we had AirPlay and Chromecast launched. So that helped our living room access. But we thought about it. Deadline, I guess the general point of view from the cheap seats is that the big launch was a costly overstretch. Women, likewise, we thought about did we want to do a soft launch or did we want to do a launch with a lot of attention around it? We said we think that's the right thing to do because, as Jeffrey said, we needed to. We were creating a whole new category, so we needed a large number of people to think about it and a large number of people to try it. And they did. We had 600,000 new users in the first week. But yes, they had 600,000 new years in the f- like first week, but I think I remember hearing that they spent multiple millions of dollars to try to acquire these customers. right? So I wouldn't go back and change that. We thought about it and we did the right thing, even though we are where we are. You can always go back and say woulda, coulda, shoulda, but I think the good news is there isn't much that people have brought up that we didn't think about and consider. You might go back and redo, but we thought about it at the time and perhaps made a different decision. Deadline. Jeffrey, one of the aspects, of course, is that you hold right now a considerable and I might add Emmy-winning library. I know that there's been discussions about selling the library. Where is that? And in terms of individual shows, like for instance, CBS with the already renewed Most Dangerous Game, but then there's this whole two-year window, how will all that be affected going forward? Will that window pretty much collapse if someone buys a property back or takes it back, they can pretty much move forward with it instantly? Kunstberg, well, I think those are things that will reveal themselves in time. I think these are all things that we are working through, Dominic. This is going really, really fast. I think the first opportunity that we think will exist is for Quibi as a service and its content to continue on, on somebody else's platform. That'll be the first thing that we will want to explore with potential buyers. It is one of the big assets of the company, which is a 100 shows, an incredible development slate, and as you said, some things that have been both big hits, but also, you know, critically acclaimed, award-winning and critically acclaimed. So that library in its totality, the Quibby service in its totality is going to be made available to potential buyers. Deadline. Jeffrey, you mentioned development. What will be the status of that? Will shows continue to develop for production or is that going to pretty much hit the pause button? Cuttsberg. Well, it'll hit the pause button until we see if there is a home for the Quibby service. Our guess is, is that If there is a home for the service, they will want to continue on, you know, with the development and with the content that's in the pipeline here. There's a very, very full pipeline of content that we think is going to be very valuable. Remember, we have 28 movies that are in the can here and that are, I think, really, really strong movies and titles with the biggest stars and incredible talent with them that are really great marquee shows. We have 28 movies available at a moment in time, which, you know, there seem to be many platforms that are looking for content because of, you know, the impact of COVID. Deadline. Both of you have been around a long time. You've been into a lot of rodeos before this, and we are seeing in the industry right now unprecedented change in the corner offices and layoffs and restructurings and perhaps of the cinema going experience. In that context, what insights, what battle scars would you offer to others who are looking around in what just seems to be a tumultuous time of endless change? Kossenberg, change is hard, particularly when it's at its extreme, which is our industry is certainly grappling with here. But that's when the biggest opportunities reveal themselves, Dominic. So as difficult as it may seem right now, for the movie business, for the network business, for the studio business, it is the moment in which great, great successes and opportunities are going to come. Women, to underscore what Jeffrey said, I think change begets opportunity. Every time there is a change in an industry, whether it's an economic structure or the business models or it's the creative process or delivery mechanisms, it signals opportunity that's one of the things we saw here that change signals opportunity. It didn't work out for us, but it doesn't mean it won't work out for existing players or other new players. Deadline, let me ask the two of you then, what's next? Whitman, I do not know. Kusenberg, I'm going to Disneyland. Delaney, you better ask Gavin Newsom about that, Jeffrey. It could be a few more weeks off. Kusenberg, I'm going. When he's ready, I'm ready. I'm going to Disneyland. But also on the other side of it, Dominic, how often do you get to dream as big a dream, as big an idea as Meg and I did, and honestly just get the opportunity to actually go and do it? I think that's the thing that we are so grateful to our employees and to our investors and all of the partners that allowed Quibi to be and for us to have this amazing two-year journey, building this thing that we're so proud of. One, to me, how can you be so proud of basically getting almost $2 billion in investment and not really showing anything for it? So check out 14box.com to master your money, personal finance lessons, and courses. Want to make money online? Learn the four steps to make money online in the description of this episode. And we'll see you on... AstraZeneca shares turned negative Wednesday after a Brazilian health authority, Anvisa, said a volunteer in his coronavirus vaccine study died. The Federal University of Sao Paulo, which is helping coordinate late-stage trials in Brazil, separately said that the volunteer was Brazilian, according to Reuters. Shares of AstraZeneca, a frontrunner in the COVID-19 vaccine race, gave up a slight gain after the news broke. Shares were down by about 1% in early afternoon trading. A spokesperson from AstraZeneca declined to comment on the volunteers, citing medical confidentiality and clinical trial regulations. The spokesperson added that, All significant medical events are carefully assessed by trial investigators, and these assessments have not led to any concerns about continuation of the ongoing study. In a statement, a spokesperson from the University of Oxford, which is developing the vaccine with AstraZeneca, said, there have been no concerns about safety for the clinical trial after an assessment of the case in Brazil. The Independent Review, in addition to the Brazilian regulator, have recommended that the trial should continue, Oxford spokesperson Alexander Buxton said. Oxford provided no further details on the volunteer's death and is unclear if the volunteer received the vaccine. Brazil currently has the second deadliest outbreak in the world behind the United States which at least 115,914 deaths according to the data compiled by Johns Hopkins University. A source familiar with the situation told Reuters that the trial would have been suspended if the volunteer had been a part of the group getting the shot. The news comes as the Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, still has a late-stage clinical trial from AstraZeneca on hold in the United States. That means the company is unable to administer second doses of its two-dose vaccine regimen to U.S. participants. The company announced on September 8th that its trial had been put on hold due to an unexplained illness in a patient in the United Kingdom. The patient is believed to have developed inflammation of the spinal cord known as transverse myelitis. The trial has since resumed in the UK and other countries. The US is expected to resume the trial as early as this week after the FDA completed its review, and Reuters reported Tuesday citing four anonymous sources. AstraZeneca is one of four drug makers backed by the U.S. in late-stage testing for a potential vaccine. AstraZeneca's vaccine, called AZD1222, uses genetic material from the coronavirus with a modified adenovirus. In July, the company published data that showed its vaccine produced a promising immune response in an early-stage trial and appeared to be well-tolerated. The vaccine produced no serious serious adverse events in volunteers, according to the researchers at the time. Fatigue and headache were the most commonly reported side effects. They said other common side effects included pain at the injection site, muscle ache, chills, and a fever. Check out 40box.com to master your money. Personal finance lessons and courses, want to make money online, learn the four steps to make money online in the description of this episode, and feel free to give your thoughts as to what's going on here, do you trust this, would you be a volunteer, and just what do you think of you know getting a vaccine as well, right? Feel free to give your thoughts on it. The new electric Hummer from General Motors will live up to the reputation of its predecessors, for being capable and over-the-top but in different ways than the gas-guzzling vehicles that previously bore the name. The 2022 GMC Hummer EV, which the automaker unveiled Tuesday night, is big, bold, and flamboyant, all things someone would expect from a military-inspired vehicle, but it also includes new technologies and exotic performance to support GM's claim of it being the world's first super truck. This is all about people who just love the best in automotive innovation, performance, capability, and technology. GMC Vice President Duncan Audred told CNBC. These are the people who you may have seen buy the exotic sports car type brands. This will be the must-have item. GM says the vehicle will offer the performance of an exotic sports car, including zero to 60 miles per hour in three seconds. Always nice, as well as off-road capability. That's second to none. Plus, it will have fast charging of up to 100 miles of range in 10 minutes, as well as a host of new technologies such as GM's next-generation driver-assist system that allows hands-free driving on highways. So the pricing. The technologies and performance will come at a cost, though. Initial availability of the Hummer EV pickup next fall will start at $112,595, including destination charges for a launch version called the Edition 1. A $99,995 version will be available a year later, followed by $89,995 and $79,995 models in the springs of 2023 and 2024, respectively. The years-long production cadence and premium pricing should assist in the vehicle's expected profitability, a goal GMs as it pivots to electric vehicles, which have historically been unprofitable for automakers, other than Tesla. The time frame also should allow for the company to ramp up production of a joint venture with LG Chem for battery cell production at a plant currently being constructed in Nordstrom, Ohio but the timeframe could allow several competitors to enter the market with new, less expensive electric pickup trucks as well. The Hummer, S-U-T, will be among an initial group of electric pickups to come to market in what is expected to be the industry's newest yet unproven, hotly contested segment. The vehicle is expected to compete against a host of electric pickups expected from Tesla, Ford Motor, and several startup co- companies such as Rivian. Tesla's Cybertruck and Rivian's R1T are both expected to have starting prices well below the Hummer EV beginning next year. To assist with simplifying the manufacturing launch of the Hummer EV, all initial models or Edition 1 versions will be identically appointed and fully equipped according to GM. Each features a white exterior and a unique Lunar Horizon interior with special Edition 1 interior badging. The vehicle will be produced at a factory in Detroit that the automaker recently renamed Factory Zero, a nod to the company's pivot toward zero-emission vehicles, is in the process of overhauling the facility with $2.2 billion in new investments. The Hummer Sport Utility Truck, or SUT, will be the first vehicle with GM's next-generation electric vehicle platform and batteries under a $20 billion plan to shift to electric and autonomous vehicles through 2025. GM estimates the top-end Hummer STT will achieve more than 350 miles of electric range and estimates best-in-class 1,000 horsepower and 11,500 pound-feet of torque. That power will be generated by three separate motors within two of GM's proprietary drive units to four-wheel drive performance on-road and off-road. We've had one goal for Hummer EV. Build the most capable factory truck ever. Al Oppenheiser, GMC Hummer EV chief engineer, said in a statement, It's an absolute off-road beast with a unique E four-wheel drive system that provides maneuverability unlike anything GM has ever offered before. Lower-priced models will feature shorter electric ranges of roughly 250 miles or 300 miles and less performance than the top-end models. The sub-90,000 models will include 625 horsepower and 7,400 pound-feet of torque with two motors instead of three. The vehicle also offers a host of off-road parts and features such as adaptive air suspension and crab mode that allows it to rotate all four wheels at once allowing the truck to almost move diagonally. Short of being able to float or fly, I think it pretty much does everything else. Audre said it is like the perfect vehicle. It has something for every type of buyer. The vehicle features an open air layout in which customers can remove the roof. The exterior features a new li- uh, yeah, iteration of Hummer's traditional slotted grille with a Hummer backlit across the front of the truck and a six-function tailgate in the back. GM unveiled the Electric Hummer Sport Utility Truck, or SUT, online and during national television broadcast Tuesday night of the Road Series and The Voice. GM announced it was resurrecting Hummer during a Super Bowl ad in February and is expected to be unveiled in May but was delayed due to the pandemic. GM's previous Hummer included an SUV and a short-lived pickup variant. The design was based on the military vehicle known as the High Mobility Multipurpose Wheeled Vehicle, or Humvee. During the early 2000s, the Hummer was a popular vehicle but also a source of criticism because of its size and poor gas mileage at around 15 miles per gallon. As an electric vehicle, GM says it's essentially flipping the Hummer's reputation on its head under the automaker's triple zero vision of zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion, an overarching goal for the company that GM CEO Mary Barra announced in 2017. Hummer EV represents the best in what General Motors is capable of in its entirety. Audrey said, I really do think it is a beacon of what GM can do and where it's going to go in the 0 future it's creating. Check out 14box.com to master your money. Personal finance lessons and courses. Want to make money online? Learn the four steps to make money online in the description of the video. And not going to lie... A 1,000 horsepower 0-60 to in 3 seconds Hummer pickup would be just fun to have. Tesla reported by far its best quarterly profit Wednesday and said it still hopes to hit its target of half a million car sales this year. The strong results and ambitious goal were good news to investors in the high-flying stock, which has gained more than 400% so far this year. Shares of Tesla climbed once again in after-hours trading on the earnings report. There have been doubts that Tesla could achieve its goal of delivering 500,000 cars to customers this year, given the shutdown of its plant in Fremont, California, earlier due to the COVID-19 pandemic ordered by local health authorities. It has delivered 319,000 cars in the first three quarters of this year. Tesla reported net income of $874 million, excluding special items, up 156% compared to what it made on that basis a year ago, and nearly double its second-quarter profit. Analysts had been forecasting earnings of $593 million. Including special items, net income came in at more modest $331 million. That was more than triple its second-quarter earnings, which were released as it was coming off of temporary lockdown of its plant. Revenue hit $8.8 billion, up 39% from a year ago, and cash flow more than tripled to $1.4 billion. Between the cash generated by operations and the money raised in recent stock sales, the once-cash-starved company ended the quarter with $14.5 billion in cash on hand, up 69% in just three months. We should have sufficient liquidity to fund our product roadmap, long-term capacity expansion plans, and other expenses, the company said in a statement. Tesla said it recently upgraded its Fremont assembly line where it builds the Model Y, its lower priced SUV. It said it now has the capacity to build 500,000 Model Y and Model 3 sedans a year there, in addition to 90,000 of its most expensive Model S and Model X versions. In addition, the company's Model 3 capacity in its new Shanghai plant stands at 250,000, and assembly lines to build the Model Y are under construction in Shanghai, Berlin, and Texas. The company expects the Model Y to be its best-selling vehicle and has set sales goals that could make it the best-selling U.S. SUV of any kind, gas or electric. In his call with investors, CEO Elon Musk, known for giving ambitious target dates and goals for the company in the past, gave a relatively cautious forecast for when the company's pickup, the Cybertruck will be available. It's difficult to predict, he said. He said he anticipates a few deliveries to customers next year, but no widespread deliveries until 2022. Musk also elaborated on a tweet from Tuesday that a better version of Tesla's its full self-driving technology had been rolled out to a handful of its vehicles. We're starting very slow and very cautiously because the road is a complex and messy place, he said on the call. The technology will be released to more people in coming weeks, he added, and will hopefully be in wide release by year end. There have some who question the safety of Tesla's self-driving technology and whether it's ready for widespread use. Musk insisted the best way to make it safer is if it's used as widely as possible because the feedback from the system will allow the feature to learn and become safer. Musk also said that he believes all methods of transportation will eventually be autonomous. Check out 14box.com to master your money. Personal finance lessons and courses want to make money online. Learn the four steps to make money online in the description of this episode. Now, personally, I wouldn't like I like driving. I love cars, right? I love supercars, I love sports cars, all that kind of stuff. But sometimes, like, if you were to drive any decent amount of time on a highway, just look in the cars next to you. Ninety-nine percent of the cars next to you. The driver is on their phone, so I don't know. Sometimes you gotta wonder, maybe being, maybe having an autonomous vehicle would actually be safer, because sometimes you look at them, you're like, you know, it was crazy. I saw someone on an iPad, with like on their steering wheel, where they were like pressing onto it and using it, staring down at it, and they were driving like a 30-year-old car, so. Yeah, people are just bad drivers. PayPal on Wednesday announced it would begin supporting cryptocurrency for the first time, allowing any PayPal account holder to store, buy, and sell popular virtual currencies starting later this year. The announcement makes PayPal arguably the most significant company in the financial tech sector to adopt support for the virtual currencies. PayPal competitor Square launched support for Bitcoin back in 2018 through its Cash apps, and Square also purchased $50 million worth of Bitcoin earlier this month. But PayPal is going further in supporting Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Bitcoin Cash and Litecoin. PayPal also plans to extend support to its money-sending subsidiary, Venmo, and international markets starting early next year. For now, PayPal plans to launch digital currency support for U.S. users in the coming weeks. The move makes PayPal a major digital wallet as well as cryptocurrency exchange, and the result could substantially increase potential adoption of cryptocurrencies among everyday users and online merchants. According to Bloomberg, PayPal has more than 346 million active accounts, of which 26 million are merchants. The shift to digital forms of currencies is inevitable, bringing with it clear advantages in terms of financial inclusion and access to efficiency, speed, and resilience of the payments system, and the ability for governments to disperse funds to citizens quickly, PayPal CEO Dan Schulman said in our statement, Our global reach, digital payments expertise, two-sided network, and rigorous security and compliance controls provides us with the opportunity and the responsibility to help facilitate the understanding, redemption, and interim operability of these new instruments of exchange. Schumann says PayPal is eager to work with central banks and regulators around the world in supporting cryptocurrency. Reuters reports transactions on PayPal's platform will be settled using traditional fiat currency so merchants won't need to transfer digital coins into dollars following a transaction. But PayPal for now is restricting users to purchasing cryptocurrencies on its own platform and existing digital coin owners can't transfer the contents of other digital wallets over to PayPal's. Check out 40inbox.com to master your money. Personal finance lessons and courses. Want to make money online? Learn the forces to make money online in the description. And uh, this just makes the whole cryptocurrency space a little bit more interesting, don't you think? Leave a comment as to.